um yeah i was laughing my head off watching that for the first time but the best uh, thing i saw was like a couple of days later i saw something on a scroll on instagram and it was like um you turn around and see this guy behind you it was the michael myers and i was like what do you do and the, the caption was i asked him what kind of bills he's paying to be slamming doors in my house <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll be into talking about some less spooky or maybe more spooky, depending on how you're looking at us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, stuff. <laughs> spooky myths and uh, nutrition um, misconceptions. What scares me about nutrition. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, everything from the, the topics we were going to talk about, I have here. The only thing I wanted to add in um maybe sort of towards the end is just to chat about BCAAs because I've had a few people ask me about that in the last while. Um, but I wanted to kick it off with, um, so I have started coaching out of a new gym and they have uh, one of these in-body bioelectrical impedance machines. So from... What I know, like from, from having uh, had some lectures about this sort of stuff in college and, and done some reading of the research, but not being like super up to date with this. Um, I know measuring body fat in general is something that's very hard to do accurately, even if you're using like the quote unquote gold standard of like a DEXA scan or I think the, the one that's supposed to be most accurate is Ooh. the one where you're floating in water, whatever that's called. Hydrostatic densitometry. Yeah, how did I not remember the name of that? Like, <laughs> Man, come on, keep <laughs> underwater weighing works fine. Yeah, but I suppose like what what I'm interested to know is like is the the error when you're measuring body fat or skeletal muscle mass on one of these devices is it enough that you could actually trust that it'll detect a change, or is it so much that you're kind of just guessing every time that you take us? Yeah, it's um. It, that, that kind of brings up a larger question around when you measure body composition. It's something I've been kind of focused on lately. Um, but there has been like there has been evidence to suggest that compared compared to DEXA, there's a cool paper where they did they took I think the in body has like different versions of its you know more and less expensive versions. I'm not sure what the absolute difference between them are. I probably imagine the sensitivity of the the yeah. nodes and things like that. Um, but they took three different um in body scanners and they compared it to a DEXA scanner. Um, I'm going to come back and comment on your point about the DEXA being gold standard, but um, they showed, they showed it's actually fairly accurate and fairly reliable, but the things that it tends to do is it actually tends to underestimate body fat percentage and fat really? mass. Yeah. Okay. And it does give a slight overestimation of, of fat free mass. Okay. Um, and the thing about this was they measured males and females. So it seems to hold true for both uh, sexes. Um, so there does seem to be a slight overestimation of like fat-free mass compared to DEXA and an underestimate, underestimation of body fat and fat mass compared to DEXA. Um, yeah. And I suppose what I suppose talking about there is like the magnitude of change or how much of a change would you need to see in metrics of body fat percentage or fat mass or, or fat-free mass to be an actual true change. Yeah. And that kind of feeds into what you brought up, the error of measurement. Um, so it's kind of still a little bit unknown at the moment from what I've seen. Um, and I'd say 
what I could recommend you to do is as you go through with your clients and start to see what kind of discrepancies you're seeing between, you know, pre-training tests and post-training tests, as in a block of training. Um, with any of these type of things, they're massively open to influences like um, mm. hydration and electrolyte balance. Um, and I think even with BIA in particular, even body position can play a, have an influence because of how fluid will move in the body depending on how your the body is orientated. So there are some scanners you can do BIA where people lie down, whereas I think the in-body is done. Standing um, up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in terms of like the use of the scanner, BIA is good in that it's pretty safe, really non-invasive, and you get the results back straight away, as, as you've probably seen. Yeah. Um, but with any, I'll say this for any body composition assessment you're doing, whether that is DEXA or BIA, um, you obviously have to standardize your conditions before the test. So mm -hmm. ideally you'd abstain from consuming kind of alcohol in the, you know, eight to 12 beforehand. Ideally you'd avoid training beforehand. So up to 12 hours beforehand. Um, ideally you would do body comp stuff fasted if you had the opportunity so if you had a client first thing in the morning it would be ideal to do it fasted but with some sort of hydration measure in there to standardize hydration levels if you do have to do it later on in the evening ideally it's like within or after about two to three hours after the last meal mm -hmm. um so just make sure that you're performing it under standardized conditions and if you are doing the best to your ability to standardize it then they're pretty reliable and repeatable um and i suppose the issue people always have is like i get this all the time is like if you do someone's skin folds they're like what's my percentage body fat how would that compare to i had a dex a few years ago and you're kind of like you're, you're not directly able to compare them because they're different kind of yeah apartment models and different dream and one thing i would say is like it doesn't necessarily matter the number you get back because the dex number could be different to a bia number but the trend of those numbers over time in your training is probably the important thing so yeah. like what I would say is if I, I, I'm a, a skin folds person and if your skin folds go up and they go up more than the error of measurement, then you'd likely say you've gained body fat. Right. Whereas I don't need a DEXA to confirm that your body fat has gone from, say, 19% to 20% or something like that. Mm. Or you've gone from 7, seven kilos of fat to 7.5 kilos of fat. Like It doesn't add anything to the conversation, I don't think. Yeah. It's all about being able to detect change. Something that I've been saying to people, I've only used that in-body thing with um, maybe two or three people so far. Um, but what I've been saying to them is that it needs to be taken as just one uh, tool in a, a toolbox for measuring your body composition. So the other tools could be, you know, taking photos yourself, the way that your clothes fit, um, the weighing scales measurements. Um, I also always say to people as well that like you know if you're if you're getting stronger in the gym um over a long period of time it really minimizes any risk that weight lost is going to be muscle mass and it maximizes the chance that weight gained is going to have at least some muscle mass in there as well um so just kind of using a collection of things yeah um, with the in body or whatever it is i, I was gonna uh ask you as well maybe people be interesting people listening would be interested to know um, like how exactly does bioelectrical impedance work? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so what it does essentially is um, you'll see on the, 
I haven't actually used Indian body myself. I've seen them done, but I am and with other BIA, the, the other ones I would have seen is these handheld devices and uh, the scales you can stand on. So within those handheld devices or within those scales, there's the nodes that will pass an electrical current through a portion of the body. Yep. So if you had a handheld device, what it would do would pass a node up your right arm, across your chest and back into your left arm and down to the other node on the, the machine. And what I like, the reason why I like the InVody a bit more, because it's kind of localized to if you're holding uh, the scanner, it'll only send the current kind of up your upper body and across to complete this, the electrical circuit. And if you only stand on a scales, it'll send the current up one leg and kind of reach your torso and come back down the other leg. So if you're to do just upper body or just lower body, you could be missing a portion of the body. Whereas with the in body, because you stand on the scale that has nodes and you also hold nodes in your hand, you've got a more likely full body representation, yeah. I think. Um, so basically how it works, like I said, it passes an electrical current um, and any of your tissues that have high water content, for example, lean body mass, muscle tissue, organs, mm. things like that, that have high water, high electrolyte content, um, the current can pass through those or is conducted through those a little bit quicker whereas in the tissues that have less water so for example fat tissue the current will be impeded a little bit so it'll be conducted slower so it kind of makes this assumption that if you have more body water you've got more lean tissue Mm. and that's why it estimates your muscle mass based on that whereas if you have less body water it's got more resistance or more impedance yeah so you've got less muscle tissue or less lean tissue and more um fat tissue so the idea is that electrical current will pass easier through a leaner person. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But it, it's really simplistic in nature, but you can see how it's really open to inferences like things like your hydration status, because you could have someone who has been training for, you know, 12 weeks with yourself and they come in and for whatever reason, they had a bad day the day before or they dehydrated and they do a scan. And because it doesn't measure as much body water, it thinks you've lost lean tissue. Yeah. So that's where the kind of trick in standardization comes in as well. Um, and other things like to kind of take that a step further, when you mentioned DEXA, like I've done DEXAs in the past, I've used them. I have seen, and they are, and it's been shown that they're open to influence like hydration status, um, muscle glycogen content, and even um, creatine status. Yeah. So anything that's going to pull water into cells in lean tissue, where there's a kind of a measurement of that, that can influence the results of these scans. So it's just important to try and standardize as much as you can the pre-test diet, pre-test hydration levels, ideally testing at the same time of day under the same conditions as close to as possible to reduce the likelihood of error. And then even still, like we said earlier, every machine, every method you use to measure body composition has an error of measurement associated with it. So what you're trying to do is figure out, has the number changed? If it has changed, is that beyond the error of measurement? So it's actually a true change. And if it's still within the error of measurement, you could be like, well, it's, you know, it's not likely that you've gained a percent body fat or I can't remember off the top of my head. I do think it's fairly narrow for BIA, which is one of the good things. Like it's quite mm. sensitive. Right. I just can't remember off the top of my head. Um, you know, I think it might've be like 1.6% either side. It's accurate right. too, or something like that. Sure. So yeah. if you gained 2%, you could argue, okay, that's outside the air of measurement. So you've gained fat, or if you lost 2%, it's outside the air of measurement. So you've lost 2%. But again, 
over time what, what's what's more important the trend is continuing downwards yeah or the absolute the number you're getting back i, I suppose um I kind of, I suppose, um, quite related to that. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, so we know that you need to be in a calorie deficit for losing body fat. Like if you're going to be using these machines or whatever measurement for measuring your body fat. Um, and like knowing that you need to be in a calorie deficit is the easy part. The hard part then is figuring out how you're going to create that in a way that's going to be sustainable for you or the person that you're going to be coaching or whatever so i was wondering from your own experience with working with people what are some of the strategies that you found to be quite effective for for people for creating a calorie deficit i know some people like to use apps i've noticed people that who are kind of quite um like maths and, and sciencey minded are quite happy to you know, get my fitness pal or chronometer or whatever app and actually log in every single thing that they eat and go for a calorie target. And some people that seems to just freak them out totally. And they seem to be better off just being given basic, uh, basic guidelines of, of habits or behavior to go for like fistful of protein at each meal or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's kind of what you said there in terms of who's the person sitting in front of you, like who's that individual and, and what kind of makes them tick and what do they like to do? And more importantly, what do they not like to do or not want to do? Yeah. Um, I suppose like that kind of leads into the, the kind of art of coaching and understanding who it is. And even there can be times where people don't want to do things, but you as the coach are kind of a bit like, well, it's in your best interest to do it this way. So mm. without being dismissive of other concerns and things. So I would say that, and it's not for everyone, like you said, there is a benefit to tracking at some point. So using an app for a period of time, um, but depending on the person, it might not be the first thing I recommend. Mm. Um, so if I did have say a person that wasn't keen on, on tracking to the gram and, and using apps in my fitness pal, there still has to be some sort of meet me kind of halfway of like, you need to get some sort of handle on what it is you're actually currently taking in. Yeah. And things I've done in the past is really boil it down to using, like you said, hand sizes or hand portion guides. So like a palm size portion of protein, uh, cup palm size of carbohydrates, fist size serving of veggies. Um, don't typically get people to weigh out or measure their fats per se, uh, usually because if they're eating, you know, animal products and things like that, they're probably going to get their fat or if they're cooking with yeah. oil and things like that, they're probably going to get their fat in anyway maybe if they're having nuts and things like that then that's how you'd help them portion it so get them to use things like that and just start to see how they're feeling energy levels like you said training performance in the gym or on the pitch um another things then i've used is or are what kind of household measurements do they have available to them so a common right. thing i would have had with younger guys coming up like oh you know what do you have for dinner and they'd be like oh, i have you know chicken and pasta and you're like okay so how much pasta do you have and you're met with that kind of blank look of, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But like a, a lot for him, like if he's 120 yeah. kilo prop, a lot for him is like two meals worth for me. Or it's or, like the, the skinny guy who's trying to, to gain muscle and he's like, I'm eating loads. Yeah. But are you? And how yeah. much is that? So things I would have got them to do is really basic of like, have you got any measuring cups or mugs or anything at home? Mm. No. Do you have a mug that you drink tea out of? And literally it's as simple as, I have my favorite mug. Okay. What I want you to do is pour the rice into the pot, 
And before you cook it, pour it into that mug and tell me how much of that mug that equals to. So then at least I have some gauge of it's around half the mug or it's a full mug. Yep. So I know next time that, okay, if we want to get into a calorie deficit or we want to get into a calorie surplus, I need to change the measurement compared to his mug. So next time, instead of having a full mug, have three quarters or have mm. half the mug. And you start to kind of just get them thinking about like when you're adding sauce to things, do you just lash it on or do you use a spoon? And you start to be like, okay, start using spoons and see how much that equates to. And again, it's not as accurate as weighing anything out or, or getting grams and, and absolute calories, but it puts people like in the headspace of actually thinking about the amounts they're eating, Yep. which for a lot of people is the key thing is to actually stop and think, are you mindlessly shoveling cheese on your omelet? Or are you actually kind of a bit more conservative because you understand well, if I fire on two handfuls of cheese, that's an extra 300 calories. That's the reason I'm not losing fat or something like that. So yeah. it's toss up between, you know, you've got these goal, potentially gold standard things that you would love to do, but then where on the spectrum is your client in relation to that? And what's actually mm-hmm. going to be the, the most practical and, and, you know, baby step, small step win, get them on the kind of path. Yeah. I would think. I think uh, that's, if you can track for at least uh, a portion of time, one really powerful thing that it does is that it teaches you how to kind of have a rough idea or an estimate of, of the calories that are in common foods. So you, you can get a handle on the fact that probably most times that you're having that fist size portion of a cut of meat or something, it's probably going to be around 250 calories, maybe 300 calories. Um, you can get an idea of like, that you know if you just add a, a, a tablespoon of peanut butter to like the protein shake for the crack that's actually adding in a lot of calories for not an awful lot of protein uh, in return and i'm not saying that people would have to do that forever but i think in some ways you you can make yourself very susceptible to to fads and different kind of dieting methods if that's the only thing that you ever rely on for, uh, for managing your calorie intake, if you never figure out like how many calories are actually in typical foods. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I think in relation to like the fad diets, they typically don't talk about calories. They no talk about kind of foods or food groups. And it kind of, that's why it's so easy. That's why it's the mm. secret. Whereas the fundamental law of thermodynamics is calories in calories out and yes. how you achieve those calories from types of food, food quality amounts, all that stuff. Mm. Um, they're the kind of intricate bits that you need to work on with your clients in terms of what suits their lifestyle, their schedule, food preferences, kind of as a social norms and cu- cultural norms could be huge as well. Yeah, um, definitely. One thing, yeah, one thing I would say with like the addition of using something or the positive of using something like the hands hand model, handy portion guide i call it yes um i think some reason or some of the reason why people might fall off the diet or um you know fall off track is because they might have a social occasion and especially now things reopening you've got more chances to go out for meals or go out and meet your friends and you don't want to be anxious about having to go out with people and not know well, am I having 200 grams of rice here? Whereas you could even kind of look at it and be like, well, I normally give myself a cup, ham and a half worth of a serving. How much does, does it look like on the plate? 
Yeah. So, so other things I've done is in, in line with the handy portion guide of giving people like, you know, what does my plate look like guides for different scenarios? So, mm. you know, a rest day, light training session, post heavy training session in terms of pitch work or carb load days type of things like that. So then at least if they do go out or, you know, the lads was common enough, they'd have a, if they had a, a big enough break between sessions, they go to the cafe for their breakfast. So you don't want, I don't want to be going to the, the breakfast bar with them and be like, okay, so only have two rashes there and two eggs. So that kind of, <laughs> can I give them, can I give them the tools that they know like, oh, yeah. two eggs here and a rasher that gives me my kind of protein target. And then maybe I could get a bowl of oats, which would be my carb target. And how does it, how does it look like and things like that? I'm just imagine them being like, Rich, can I get a croissant? <laughs> Uh, it's easier to ask, ask for forgiveness, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Got to eat your veggies first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did that with the chef for a summer camp because um, we had like under 18s. And I said to the chef when he was dishing up, I was like, the first thing that goes on the plate is the veg, which is kind of counterintuitive because you think with rugby players, it would always be protein. But I was so adamant that these guys needed to get some micronutrients into them because they were training two or three times a day and developing athletes. And I was like, the the veg goes on the plate first and all the players will complain to the chef and he's like, I don't care. Richie said the veg goes on first. Yeah. So eventually what he had to do was like mix the veg into the beans and then they were able to eat it. <laughs> so it was like, okay, we'll compromise. They still get their veggie and they stop complaining. So we've kind of won a little bit here, I think. <laughs> You're like uh, sticking carrots and broccoli into the thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about is... Um, the so for years there was this this myth going around that you know there's a very rigid uh post-workout window for protein consumption if you want to optimize the gains and i think it was touted as being something as small as like 20 or 30 minutes after you finish training and who knows how many people to this day still like try to make sure they chug down a protein shake within that time period because of that. Um, I'm sure it probably came as usual. We were discussing this uh, via text the other day from, from some kind of study that was misinterpreted or a single study that found a result and then got uh, passed around. Um, I do know uh, from something Brad Schoenfeld was saying a couple of years ago, I think that there is post-workout window but it's much larger i think up to maybe even four hours or so could potentially be enough but uh even more so yeah Um, yeah, i'd love to get your your thoughts on that you'd be more up to date with the research on that than i would be yeah it's a great question and it is something i still see people talk about a lot Mm. um i think one of the the uh, i heard this recently i think one of the main reasons it came out was in the late 90s John Ivey, who would have done a lot of previous research on carbohydrate intake with Ed Coyle, um, you know, the famous 33% longer study, that kind of, that research group. John Ivey released... Just the Lucasade thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was okay. from like a, an Ed Coyle paper back in the 80s where they had okay. people, two groups of people run on a treadmill and they basically got them to run until they couldn't run anymore. And one group yeah. wasn't given any anything. And yeah. the other group was given this 6 or 8% carbohydrate solution and they lasted 33% longer. Mm-hmm. so that's kind of where all that advertisement and stuff came from i think yeah um but other members of that group so john ivy released a book in the late 90s i want to say that was called nutrient timing okay so this is an entire book on nutrient timing when even now in 2021 we're still kind of well 
don't think we are debating it. We we understand its importance, but we also understand where it fits in in the overall mm. hierarchy of important factors. Yeah, much lower down the pyramids. Yeah, well, much higher. Or, up sorry, higher up the pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> lower lower yeah, down the lower hierarchy. The ladder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So in terms of like this idea, it was like you said, people used to think that unless I chugged some whey protein within you know 15 minutes or 20 minutes of finishing my workout the workout was completely wasted and i might as well not have trained yeah <laughs> when you think about it logically you're like hey, what no what How? that doesn't make any sense or be a really inefficient way for our bodies to adapt the training exactly yeah right uh the good example i heard uh is like you know the lads that do like they walk the rack dumbbell lateral raises and they have like the dumbbell set up but the last set of dumbbells is met with a protein shake so it's like finish walking the rack <laughs> and you get your shake in and there's i've seen people do it and i've seen people like literally sprint Jesus. to the changing rooms yeah so there is like you said this post-workout anabolic window as people call it but i do think it can last up to around 48 hours in oh um in like healthy male trainees could be sorry like muscle protein synthesis can, can remain elevated for for that long um i think muscle protein breakdown remains elevated for 24 hours so you probably do have around let's say 24 hours now sorry sorry to interrupt you but yes is, is that the length of time in which you could still guess um like some kind of a positive effect or if we're talking like optimizing us, it would it would stretch out oh, that far as well. Uh, no, that wouldn't be for optimal. That just means yeah. you could yeah. potentially. So if you take most people who train in a gym, probably train at the same time of the day, a couple of days a week. Yeah. So for the people that are training a couple of days a week and they're going to train, let's say you train at seven in the morning before work, like you still have until seven in the morning, the next day before your next training session, that's still a full 24 hours where if you get enough protein in, in that window, all of a sudden getting extra in or getting it all in in that, you know, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. window doesn't make much of a difference. Right. The trick with this, I suppose, is people that are undertaking multiple training sessions per day. So like your top level athletes or mixed modality athletes that might gym in the morning and train bitch in the afternoon or. Mm. So then you have a narrow window because you have like this potential interference effect of going out in the pitch and doing a different type of training. And all of a sudden you could be blunting protein synthesis. Right. So. What essentially happens is by undertaking resistance training or doing a gym session, you kind of just sensitize your muscles for the uptake of nutrients. And resistance training simulates what's called muscle protein synthesis, which is this kind of mechanism whereby we build new proteins. And for the purpose of strength and hypertrophy, we are building more contractile proteins in terms of actin and myosin. Yeah. So the, the thinking there is that if we're at rest and we consume some amino acids or we consume some protein we'll get a, a small increase in muscle protein synthesis because or in, in protein synthesis because we have amino acids we can use those amino acids to build proteins if we do resistance training we get an increase in protein synthesis same signal so the combination of resistance training plus amino acids or protein you get this kind of synergistic effect where you get an increased rate of muscle protein synthesis okay. so Throughout the day, we have this kind of cyclical pattern where synthesis is elevated and then decreases to a point where you've got more breakdown than you've got synthesis. So this is kind of a natural occur occurring process. You can stimulate synthesis, like I said, by eating. And the best way to kind of do it is to match that cyclical periodically throughout the day, um, which kind of throws up a larger question of what are you doing in the pre-workout window? 
are you consuming amino acids and is there a potential effect that the amino acids you've consumed in the pre-workout window are actually already in the system and are better positioned yeah. to get into the muscle immediately after the training session and does that reduce the need to have amino acids immediately after mm-hmm. so i think like the, uh, and there, there can i think there is evidence to suggest that delaying protein feeding you may not get the same rise in muscle protein synthesis so i, I do think there is evidence to suggest that while you, it is sensitized for like i said 24 hours you know it's not like you should do your gym session and then wait 12 hours before you eat closer yeah. to the training session is likely going to be better but it's not like you have to literally consume the shake as soon as the dumbbell touches the floor of your last exercise. Mm-hmm. You probably do have time to take a shower, go home and yeah. actually eat a meal. So for any elite athletes or people undertaking multiple training sessions, I'd say within the first hour, ideally for general populations, you probably have a decent enough window where you're not under that much pressure. Yeah. Um, and what I do think is important as well is rather than focus narrowly on that kind of post-workout window, is actually think about what your total protein intake per day is yeah, and where does that window fit within your day? And maybe if it's the case, you're training first thing in the morning and you don't have time to have breakfast, then maybe the post-workout window becomes more important because it's an opportunity to kind of make up for missed protein feeding before training. So you get extra in your post-workout window. But again, the thing I always say is what's your total protein intake per day? Because if you get 40 or 50 grams in that post-workout window and then you don't eat enough protein the rest of the day and you only get, you know, another 50 grams the rest of the day, well, you're still down on your total protein intake. So the window wasn't as important. That seems to be the, the, the overarching thing for, for protein research that like the total protein intake seems to be the most important thing. Yeah. And to a smaller degree, the distribution of protein intake, so like a common question would be like, well, if I need 160 grams of protein a day, can I just have a big breakfast with 160 grams? Cause I've hit my total. Jesus, and that's a lot of food. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> like, and that's, that's a de- definitely an extreme example, but I, there are people that have like 70 or 80 grams in a city Yeah, and they're kind of like, oh yeah, sure. I'm not going to eat again. You're kind of like, well, like, like I talked about that cyclical pattern mm. of, of synthesis versus breakdown seems to suggest that we're better off having kind of, doses more frequently so roughly every three to four hours throughout the day that's always been my um that's always been my hunch like when people have asked about like intermittent fasting and stuff like that um it it would just seem to me it make more sense that having those amino acids in your bloodstream more regularly throughout the day would optimize the protein synthesis a bit more yeah so i think if anyone is interested in undertaking i don't recommend purely fasted training um because what can happen is when you're fasted you can get an uptake in i suppose amino acid oxidation or leucine depending on the type of training and duration of training it'll dictate how much of that happens um so that can be like i said important for muscle protein synthesis and with athletes and people who are training you really don't want them losing lean body mass or lean tissue you want to try and preserve that because that's going to give them their strength and their their force output and all the good things associated with performance so for anyone that's undertaking faster training they want to get maybe more fat oxidation i would suggest you do some kind of you know protein fasted as in have a weight beforehand or something yeah um that'd be the the one caveat just to kind of offset any potential negatives of because even when you do 
uh, finish resistance training while synthesis is elevated, breakdown is elevated as well. So kind of the total turnover of amino acids can be elevated. Yeah. You just don't want to run the risk of training fasted and then missing, you know, another four hours of not eating and you have more breakdown than you have synthesis for that period of time. And you just kind of end yeah. over in this overall net, net kind of balance that doesn't really show any adaptations or, or kind of improvements. Sure. Um, and in terms of the, the current recommendations for protein intake um, in terms of grams per day for people who are doing strength training and trying to optimize that, um, are we still less kind of one and a half to do two grams per kilo of body weight per day. I know I'd seen some, some research recently that was indicating you could go even beyond that potentially. Yeah. Um, I would always say it's between 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kg. Okay. Based on, um, some of the meta analysis that came out a few years ago, it just seemed, that seems to be the, the kind of sweet spot where a lot of the adaptations take place without being excessive. Um, for people that are just involved in, in kind of, Strength training, like I said, once a day, a couple of days a week, 1.6 is probably a good starting point. If you're involved in more vigorous training outside of that, then you can push it closer to two. I probably have most people on two. Yeah. Um, I would, I do have a, a hunch that younger developing athletes probably need a little bit more, like towards 2.2 or maybe even higher. Just and because think, of the, the need to put on muscle mass? Yeah. And I yeah. think because they're potentially so new, so newer trainees probably need a little bit, bit more um, protein compared to experienced trainees, just because experienced trainees have kind of, sort of maximized their sensitivity to protein and amino acids. So more isn't necessarily better. Whereas younger mm -hmm. trainees and even older people um, can do with having a little bit more because um, of the, I suppose for older people, the effects of aging and, and muscle atrophy and that kind of redu reduction in sensitivity. So you kind mm -hmm. of, offset that by feeding more protein and i just think with some of the stuff i'm reading around developing athletes is their caloric intake is probably a lot higher than we think it is so we probably one of the things i'm definitely guilty of is applying adult resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate equations to uh, to adolescents and that doesn't factor in the heightened need for additional calories because of maturation and development yeah. of puberty and things like that so that actually pushes their total calorie calorie needs higher which allows you a bit more leeway to go with higher protein, but you still obviously partition the macronutrients, carbs and fats within that. But I do think because they're newer to training, they could benefit yeah. from having higher protein intakes. You do see kids who are like 15 years old and eat like an absolute, like a horse and uh, are bone thin because they're just, they're growing at such a, a rapid rate. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as well that, you know, like for me, I weigh 92 kilos at the moment. You know, if I'm going for that 2.2 or even two grams per kilo of body weight, 180 grams of protein in a day is quite a, quite a bit of um, ground to cover. Um, and I think it's, it's a bigger reason why I would definitely try to get more feedings throughout the day than just limit myself to two or three meals because protein as a macronutrient, as you know, is extremely filling. Um, so if you're trying to get like 90 grams uh, in just two meals, like that's that's a lot of work. Mm, can be, yeah. Um, 
And that kind of there is uh, some of the evidence that I think it was from hey, Schoenfeld and Arion that seemed to highlight that rather than uh, so look at it in terms of your total intake per day, but then you can split it up on a meal by meal. So you can have a like a, a 0.4 or 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram per meal. So to take a really basic example, if you've got 100 kilo athlete and you set them on 1.6 grams per kg and you look at their per meal feeding of 0.4 grams per kg, that's four servings of 40 grams of protein, which isn't actually that difficult when you think about it. Yeah. So a really good breakfast, a good lunch, a good dinner, and maybe a pre-bed snack that all have 40 grams in it. So that your start point, for example, but then you might tweak and be like, I don't know if I get home from work late or I train late. I don't, I can't really eat 40 grams before bed. And you're like, okay, well, why don't we split that into two 20 grams or have a morning snack and an evening snack after dinner or something like that. There's yeah, kind of yeah. plenty, plenty of way to break it up. And it kind of feeds into um, personal preference. I do think less than probably three meals or three feeds throughout the day probably is suboptimal. Right. Just for the per, per meal amount. And, and you yeah. do need a minimum amount of protein per meal to stimulate that protein synthesis. Um, and that's why it's good to be aware of the per meal recommendations as well. And very last uh, protein question, because um, we're doing a lot of protein there. Uh, when I get asked uh, quite regularly when people are, are going to purchase their whey protein for the first time, is what is the difference between whey isolate and whey concentrate? And is it something that people need to be conscious of? Uh, it's not something I place a whole pile of emphasis on, to be honest with you. It's something I don't really um no. <laughs> I suppose the differences are like if you had a um a whey concentrate, it means that per uh you know 100 grams it's kind of between maybe 30 and 80% of that could be protein. So meaning the scoop you have in front of you or the bag you have in front of you contains other nutrients other than just whey protein. Um, and because of the minimal amount, of obviously whey protein is still a processed food because of the minimum amount of protein processing to get protein concentrate, they tend to be a little bit cheaper. Whereas if you had something that's an isolate, like the kind of name suggests, it's isolating whey protein. So you typically have 90% and above protein by weight. Um, so it takes some of those additional nutrients out and it can take things like lactose out as well. So maybe for yeah. people that have lactose or dairy intolerances, it could be an okay option if it's below their, their lactose threshold for the day. Um, but I suppose on the back of that, having a little bit more processing makes it a little bit more expensive. Mm. Um but it, I get you get you get more protein per scoop essentially. Yeah. So in, in the um, concentrate, you're getting more milk, sugars, and fats and stuff like that in the scoop. Yeah. yeah. Potentially, yeah. Um, um, there's another one you might see, but I don't necessarily. I don't know if it's sold on shelves. Is protein hydrolysis? Yeah. Um, and these are those proteins that are are pre-digested. Um, they're getting a lot of attention in research because they're really rapidly absorbed, and if they're rapidly absorbed, they're um, getting to work a bit quicker. So. Right. The, the drawback of these is because of the amount of processing and pre-digesting involved, it ramps the price up a little bit more. Mm. Um, they also taste awful. They're awful. Uh, yeah. The, the name doesn't suggest it anyway. <laughs> I've been in Pre-digested. two. <laughs> yeah, I've been in two research studies. Um, I was a researcher on one for protein hydrolysis years ago. Um, mm. And we opened the bag and the two of us were just like, Phew. 
No. Like a, like a shaker that's been left out in the sun. Worse. But yeah. And then I was a participant in one recently and they're actually using fish-derived hydrolysis. And oh, come on. Really, really hard to mask the scent <laughs> or odor of fish, even though they flavored it like chocolate caramel or something. So you got this really nice chocolate oh. caramel t- taste the tongue and then it's after whiff of like tuna and you're like what's going on <laughs> so, you gotta just gotta lean into that flavor and make it like uh <laughs> this catch protein yeah man oh i don't know if it'll make it to market as a uh no probably not very practical um well you I'm, could add it to foods i suppose and, like you could add it to like fish soup or something or things yeah. like that or fish sauces and boost I the suppose. protein content of of things like that so they'll find a use for it i'm sure um and on the on the topic of uh fish actually one of the things i wanted to ask you about was fish oils um omega-3s fatty acids and that sort of stuff uh i suppose cod liver oil is probably the most popular one do you think they're worth supplementing with do you think there's enough research to indicate this i know heart health is one of the things that they've been purported to help with yeah, um, I suppose when it comes to the question of are they worthwhile supplementing with, I'd, I'd always take it back to this food first approach and seeing like, well, how much omega threes and omega sixes are you getting in your diet? Mm. Not like already, uh, and easiest ways to do that is likely through uh, amount of fish you're eating, so like salmon, mackerel, cod, things like that. Yeah. So if people aren't opposed to eating fish, it's a ready source of protein that also provides these omega threes and omega sixes. Um, so why not just include a couple of servings of fish in the diet per week? Um, I suppose why they get such focus is because of the type of their polyunsaturated fatty acids. And there's two main types or two key ones in omega threes, these DHA and EPA they're called. So these are essential nutrients because the body can't, um, make them to any appreciable degree by itself. Mm. There is one form that's found mostly in plants like flax and flaxseed oils are called alpha linoleic acid, ALA, and the body can, to a certain degree, um, make EPA and DHA from ALA, but it's not enough to cover the needs. So people would supplement then or, or eat foods containing omega-3s to boost the amount they have in their body for functions. So yeah. the reason why they're important is for probably for cell membrane functions. So the fluidity of our, our cell membranes, which can help with controlling the passage of things in and out of the cells. Um, they can potentially improve muscle protein synthesis, um, which makes them useful in things like if you've got, we've had players that have been injured and one of the supplements will provide alongside extra protein is fish oils to help with kind of, protein synthesis i think in older trainees as well it's been shown to help with uh, muscle protein synthesis the other thing is they can help with controlling inflammation and cognitive function potentially so these always have health implications but then if you think towards people involved in strength sports or athletes this can potentially have performance benefits as well yeah Um, so potentially worth so for me i don't take any fish really outside of tuna every now and then um i actually quite like some fish like salmon and mackerel but i found a while ago that uh it would just make me feel sick i I think i have some kind of issue with like um really fatty oily um cuts of meat or fish um but i can take cod liver oil or or fish oil tablets fine Mm. um so do you think that it's worth doing for somebody who doesn't eat fish i would think so because yeah because of the fact that they're these essential nutrients that we can't re- readily make or re- make enough of 
then it's important to get them in. Yeah. So a uh, supplement can be of, of use there. My uh, hesitation, I have a lot of hesitations around recommending supplements kind of willy nilly. Mm. Um, but I think in particular things like fish oil is because of the, their structures, there's these long carbon chains essentially. And because of the way they're kind of structured is they can actually undergo oxidation quite easily. And this can actually kind of spoil them. I think the term they use in, in, in research and is like ran, rancid, they become rancid or rancidity, I think. Um, so when you're processing the fish oils to actually make these capsules or tablets, it kind of oxidizes the structures. And when this happens, it reduces the amount of DHA and EPA that's actually in the product. Um, so then when you actually compare the product under like lab conditions compared to what's on the label, they find that actually is less in the product. Right. So it can be kind of tricky to standardize based on your product and where you're getting from and, and costs and things like that. But the short answer is if you're not eating enough fish, then yes, it's probably beneficial to include them. Okay. Interesting. Um, food intolerance tests. Um, so I've heard, you've probably heard quite a few people say that they went off and got one of these tests and they came back saying that they were intolerant to all sorts of things and now they can't eat them anymore um i don't know the the accuracy the validity of these tests if they're they're really reliable thing to be using um the impression i've gotten from people who are actual nutrition experts is that they're not and that i would think you know the the big drawback of that is you might be um stopping somebody from taking in a food that, that's perfectly fine for them, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. They're interesting things. Um, I can kind of see why, like, people typically go for these things because they might see they have a digest digestive problem or maybe they feel there's an autoimmune issue. Mm. Um, the main reason why would be allergies. Um, you st I don't know how much of this is kind of, placebo where people feel like oh this food makes me bloated or this food i don't know if placebo is the right word there um but you know that kind of thing oh i can't eat bread it makes me bloated but they've heard that bread can bloat people or yeah you know some people do get like joint pain swelling people do get like um, no no placebo i guess yeah potentially yeah um because there's a there's an expectation of a negative effect yeah it's kind of like they've kind of almost predisposed themselves to having this because they've heard of it and they kind of self-diagnose yeah. themselves. So I, I suppose people take them or, or go and have them done because they might like want to uncover some kind of hidden food sensitivity, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and there does seem to be evidence out there to suggest there's uh foods that can have reactions with digestive or autoimmune or, or allergy symptoms. So it does make sense then that you you know, as a consumer, you could go and get these tests done. But um, there doesn't seem to be much evidence in that these food sent tests or there's hidden food sensitivities are driving any underlying damage when you don't have any symptoms per se. Mm. In terms of like the type of tests you can do, some of them are absolute uh, nonsense. I don't know if you heard of any of the types of tests. So, you can some do. of them, they just rub food on your skin, don't they? I think so, yeah. Surely yeah, that's going to be slightly different to the effect it has when it's in your gut. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, they prick you. 
yeah. on the arm or something. One of the funniest ones I'm aware of is like, um, it's called muscle response testing. And what they do is they get you to hold a glass jar that has an extract of the food in it while the person pushes down on your other arm to test for weaknesses that have been induced by apparently holding this food in food extract. So <laughs> very accurate, very relatable, mm. reliable, very repeatable. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of, I've heard of other ones where like they'll get you to they'll set up electrodes on either point of the skin and they'll place the, the food to extract on the skin or somewhere in that electrical current. And again, they'll measure the impedance kind of like we spoke about earlier. Um, and the impedance will tell you how sensitive you are to that food and things like that. So it's kind of crazy when you think about the nonsense that's out there. I mean, so the one, complete... the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, and again, I'm not sure like how much scientific backing it has behind it is just that whole idea of kind of like food elimination so like just minimizing your diet down until you figure out what seems to be giving you the issue. Yeah. And a lot of the results from these tests are they put you on some kind of elimination diet. Right. So some of the other tests out there, there's like this Alcat test uh-huh. um, and it measures this blood, white blood cell response. And there's another one that measures the change in cell volume size in response to eating these foods. And they've done that in IBS patients, but what they found was that the patient's symptoms relieved when they followed a low FODMAP diet. But the argument against that is like a low FODMAP diet is known to reduce IBS symptoms. So you could have just done that anyway without having to do the test type of thing. Um, So I suppose the other test that gets used is this immunoglobulin G or IgG test, which is meant to, so immunoglobulins are these, um, immune proteins um, that are secreted in response to an antigen being present. So the assumption is if you eat a food, it sets off this immunological immunological reaction whereby you secrete these antibodies to fight that. But what's actually, I think, happens is just by eating that food, you get an IgG response anyway. Yeah. So you may not actually necessarily be symptomatic or sensitive or allergic to that food, but the uh, immunoglobulins antibodies still show up. So there's just not enough evidence to indicate that it actually works in the way it says it does. Um, and the, the problem associated with this is the costs involved. Like some of the tests aren't as expensive, a couple of hundred euros. Some of them could be maybe up to a grand. Jesus. And like you said, if, if you're, you're going to spend this much money, it may not actually provide much helpful information. And like you said, if it puts people off certain foods or food groups, they could be missing a whole host, whole host of other nutrients and they could end up deficient in other nutrients because they're avoiding food groups uh maybe there's psychological implications of trying to be overly restrictive with food groups and again maybe people actually convince themselves they're intolerant of a food when they're not Mm. so they have this psychosymptomatic placebo effect uh, i think that's very feasible I'm, i'm pretty sure that i had that back in the the crossfit days of my youth when i first got into the paleo diet and um i mean like i think people were even saying that rice or certain types of rice uh were bad for good health so um i can remember sometimes having my stomach feel a bit weird if i would eat uh white rice um now that doesn't happen to me at all um and i suppose there's also probably an argument as well that if you don't eat a food for a long period of time, 
um, and then come back to us, you could have issues with digesting us. I know a lot of people who followed the paleo diet and didn't eat bread for ages. And then, you know, they allowed themselves like a cheat day or whatever. And, you know, they ate the bread and they didn't feel too good. And they were like, oh God, it just goes to show how bad, how bad bread really is for you. And it's like, we haven't eaten it for like six months. Shows how efficient your body is at adapting to what you're giving it or what you're not giving it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can see that with um, how much, how much better I think um, in general, um, people from certain regions on the planet are to digesting uh, milk or dairy products than people say like in like the, the Eastern countries. Yeah. And alcohol. And alcohol. Yeah. All the tasty <laughs> stuff, basically. Yeah. All the stuff all the that real, makes life enjoyable, ice cream macros. and beer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like that's to be said to that because what can happen in some of the research with, with athletes that swap over to more of a ketogenic or high fat diet is they think the enzymes related to fat digestion get upregulated. So you get more enzymes that are concerned with digesting fat. So your body's like, well, if the only or major source of macro we're getting for energy is fat, then we better get really good at using this. And all of a sudden, then you reintroduce a load of carbohydrates, let's say for your race. And it's kind of like, well, all the builders are here, but they've been trained in one particular mm-hmm. skill set. Like I think Lane Norton said it really well, where it's like you have a, a warehouse that specializes in building ships. And all of a sudden you turn over and say, we're now going to build planes. So yeah. you retrain all your, staff and actually hire more staff to build the plane and all of a sudden the owner comes in and is like build me a ship right now and you're kind of like we haven't done that in so long how are we meant to and at the most critical points of your your preparation you know yeah day before the day before the, the event the race yeah that's why like i mean i haven't i haven't trained anybody for like a, a powerlifting meet before but like um if they were asking me about like nutrition and they were thinking of like changing something radically on on the day i would be inclined to say just eat normally what you usually would because when you start introducing all this new stuff into the mix there's a there's a high likelihood that you're going to feel weird 100 yeah definitely guilty when i competed in powerlifting <laughs> first time i competed i thought i needed to carb load because i done all this research and, and studying around carb loading and endurance athletes and i think i put myself <laughs> on like eight grams carbs per day the day yeah. before and my body just wasn't able for it. Like it just flowed through me. Like it just, I think uh, I felt more sick because of the <coughs> volume of food I was eating. And I'm not felt great on the day, but I, I probably could have stopped at five or five grams for KG and had the exact same effects without the, mm. the negative effects. Yeah. Um, for all like 60 seconds of activity, you probably get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then someone nine lifts. I was like, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> um although it's a lot of standing around so you you definitely want to have some some food in your stomach um uh so last kind of um supplement related one i wanted to go through we're getting towards the end here anyway uh zinc zinc ma sometimes it's called or zinc or magnesium um as a sleep supplement i've heard people say pretty consistently that they guess some pretty funky dreams taking this stuff but as to whether or not it actually helps you get to sleep quicker or improves the quality of the sleep that you get um i'll let you talk about that so do you mean like um zma as a combined supplement well i think that's generally what's um what's purported to be like the 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 way to take it right combining the two of them together that it's meant to have some effect on sleep yeah i think the 
think the Vivid Dreams, so ZMA is zinc and magnesium aspartate, but it's combined with vitamin B6, which is uh, peroxidine. And I actually think it's the peroxidine that causes the weird dreams because I I'm, do think there's a paper out there where they gave people 250 milligrams of peroxidine and they said they experienced the weird dreams. Yeah. And um, what is peroxidine? Vitamin B6. Okay. Which is another. So one of the things that always confused me was that it's like, zinc magnesium and b6 so i was like so why wasn't it called zmb yeah i've only heard zma <laughs> yeah it's zma it's because of the type of magnesium magnesium aspartate that's uh it's kind of chemical formulation or whatever um i think there's only one paper that showed a, a performance benefit following sleep in supplements with zma and it was from the lab that created zma so take uh, that with a pinch of salt so yeah, you know it was your man victor, bias there victor Con- was it victor conte came up with this uh, Victor Conte is the, the guy who was giving the steroids to all the baseball players, right? Balco, yeah, he came and up with this. used to be the bass player in... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what was that band? I don't know, but yeah, that's hilarious. Such a bizarre life. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a hero. He, he created... Um, was it the Clear? Was that Clambuterol? That was his baby? Really? Wow. I think so, yeah. Obviously some chemistry skills. <laughs> we went to the wrong college course. Yeah. Uh, Bay Area Lab Corporation, Balco in San Francisco. That's what it was. So the Balco scandal. If anyone's in looking up Balco, or he actually does a good one of the few Joe Rogan interviews I like is with Victor Conte. I haven't seen that Joe. one. I didn't. I didn't yeah. see that actually. It was years ago, it was back when Joe was a small fry. Mm. Um, but anyway, these, I think I sorry to get off on a tangent about the, Joe uh, Rogan. <laughs> the mis- it comes no, the up mis- somehow on every podcast. <laughs> Oh my God, it's like it's meant to be. Um, so zinc on its own, haven't seen much in terms of its efficacy on helping people get to sleep. Most times it's prescribed that I can tell and that I've used in the past is for colds. So upper respiratory symptoms um, where you take it as a lozenge mm. and it acts locally on the mucous membranes. Um, I think with any of these things as well, like I was talking about with the omega-3s is do a dietary assessment and see if you if you are actually deficient in these. There doesn't seem to be a, a massive deficiency of zinc or magnesium in most of the population. The caveat to those is people that are doing a lot of training and are having a lot of sweat losses because they could lose those um, those minerals through their sweat potentially. Um, so that's why I suppose they make the justification for supplementing in athletes. Magnesium. Uh, yes, there is some good evidence to improve sleep in elderly populations, but I think the reason is elderly populations tended to have lower magnesium intake through their diet anyway, because they typically don't eat as much as they used to eat. So would again, look and see what your overall dietary intake of zinc and magnesium are. And this is where, again, it comes back to if you did want to track more precisely an app can be helpful, or I have nutrition analysis software that I can analyze that stuff when clients come to me if they're concerned about it. Yeah. Um, I don't I think some of the stuff as well from talking to people last week around there was we were at a um, conference and they were looking at kind of sleeping athletes and they were talking about some of the foods they use and I think one of the comments was like is it more so to do with the actual food you're giving them or is it more to do with the fact that it kind of triggers them to think a bit more about their sleep habits right yeah and that's always the like, question with any of these interventions I think yeah I think so and it's like is it the fact that you take this tablet and you go, okay, I've taken my sleepy tablet now, so I'm going to feel sleepier when I get into bed. I'm going to sleep better. So have you kind of convinced yourself that you're sleeping better? 
Um, I mean, like when they've done studies where they've given people uh, sham steroids and they've gotten um, some pretty incredible uh, physiological strength gains out of it. It just shows you how powerful the placebo effect is. Yeah. I remember that. Did you see that paper where they gave two groups caffeine, but they told one group it wasn't caffeine and their performance declined. Like, so even you got a like, power yeah. of nocebo as well, which is, is amazing. Um, um, there was one... Uh, I don't know if you read it. It was um, uh, they told people that uh, they whether they fell into a group of people who produced uh, a lot of lep- leptin. I think it was or less. Um, it was it was some it was some kind of uh, hormone that was um, involved in like appetite appetite regulation or, or fat deposition or whatever, but. So they had people who actually naturally produced a lot of it and people who didn't. Um, and then, you know, they told them one way or the other. Um, and the the thing that had the biggest impact on uh, their levels of it when they measured at the end were what they had been told, not even like what their, their natural secretion of it was before the study. So like, it's absolutely crazy. And I think that that's how so many of these... Um, you know people who who spin like nutrition myths and misconceptions can get away with it either way because if somebody believes them is kind of almost the most important thing as to whether it actually works or not and you see that with the supplement industry as a whole yeah man yeah um what would be like in that vein what would be kind of the biggest nutrition misconceptions you feel like you encounter um regularly now when you're working with people uh, that there is a secret or that there is one best thing. Like and one best very, diet or one best yeah, food or one best food, yeah, for yeah. a particular like I saw something yesterday, it's like the 10 best fat burning foods. <laughs> I'm sure you get this all the time, like, oh Killian, what's the, the best exercise for my legs? Yeah. Kind of like, well, it's gonna be the one that you like doing, you're seeing you know, progressive overload occurring in, it's not mm. beating you up massively. Like there's all these factors to, yep. to factor in. It's kind of the same with diet. Like it's, there's no best anything. There's optimal and there's optimal based on research. And then there's, like we talked about earlier, it's where, you know, you take the paper and you sit with the person mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the person's like, I don't have opportunity to eat five times a day. And you're kind of like, but the, the paper says to eat six times a day. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing that. So where do you go? So it's, yeah. It's this idea that and it's kind of like you said, it's been kind of cultivated by this idea of people kind of selling something or pushing this idea and then, oh, it worked for me or mm. it worked for my neighbor, it worked for my mate. Yeah. So I should do it and you should do it. And you're like, maybe the reasons why it worked for him were completely different to why it would work for you or no. suited their circumstances or um like a lot of the arguments over this ketogenic low carb or carnivore diet is uh, the fundamental is it's getting people more mindful of their caloric intake mm-hmm. and typically they end up in a deficit so they can lose fat. And usually what happens is because they change the type of foods they're eating because they have to eat less carbs or carnivore, they eat more meat, they end up replacing the macronutrient with extra protein. Right. So then they get the benefits of extra protein, less calories, and they start to see these changes in body composition, strength, and performance. Um, I wouldn't say it makes them more mindful 
of caloric intake though if it because a lot of the the camps in in these diets seem to be like outright denying that calories even matter it's just kind of like a happy accident that by following the guidelines of this diet you end up in a deficit yeah yeah you've picked me up spot on i probably uh, misrepresented it there um these guys don't think about anything (laughs) (laughs) but it's just really i just find it really ironic like to see people arguing so adamantly that like calories don't matter but yet every single diet has to create a deficit for it to work you know yeah 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 it's crazy it's it's again it's people that have like a uh, an affiliation to or an affinity for or maybe a skin in a certain game that they need to push or yeah, uh, I suppose for people that have like, if you say we're a person that we're advocating low carbohydrate diets, and that was the kind of your thing a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the research started to come out to like, well, it actually doesn't matter if you control calories and get your protein right if you go higher carb or, or higher fat, it doesn't make much of a difference for most people. Yeah, if you've kind of nailed your colors to the mast a few years ago, you have a reputation and a kind of an ego to protect there. Where yeah. If you turn around and be like, actually, carbs are fine. You could have a mass of followers that are like, what? I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm out. And if that affects your bottom dollar, bottom euro, then I can totally understand. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can understand where they, why yeah. they would have to kind of almost have to kind of double down. Yeah. The um, right. yeah, the the logic behind it and their their mind makes sense anyway. But um. I suppose like the last thing I wanted to close out with that's very related to that um, is like, I think it's one thing having people giving us information that is not necessarily scientifically accurate, but it ends up uh, making people more conscious of their nutrition in the long run. And, you know, they still end up with a better diet than if they had just done nothing and they just kept eating crap food and and a caloric surplus. But then you have a a much more kind of like sinister types of information being put out that whether it's intentional or not is potentially actually harmful to people. Um, And a lot of people would argue that like just putting out inaccurate information isn't, isn't good enough regardless, especially if you have a big platform like, do you think that nutrition as a sec- as a sector in the fitness industry needs uh, stricter regulation, both for what can be sold, say like in a supplement shop, we know that a huge percentage of what's being sold in there doesn't have research backing. Um, I think there's there's an ethical argument there that that's uh, that's misleading people, and um, and you know should there be stricter regulation on who is allowed to dispense advice? Should they? have to have met a certain standard for education for certification uh should things be overseen a little bit more about like what people are and aren't allowed to to advise people on yeah yeah definitely um it's kind of like if take for example yourself like you have qualifications and strength conditioning you've got a master's um and people kind of know what that means and know what kind of level that's to and then there's like people that have like personal training qualifications and that kind of gives them the minimum entry requirements to work in a gym and things like that. Mm. And that's fine. That's like the minimum barrier to entry, which is great that there is something like that. I don't necessarily know if people are aware of, of what types of things exist in the nutrition sphere. 
for that maybe yeah. so i think from like from a practitioner point of view i do think there's a lot of very good processes in place to make sure we're adhering if we are you know ethically sound and want to be the best performance nutritionists or whatever type of nutritionist we can be so like there are things like for example we would have been encouraged throughout our masters to get in, in accredited by what's called the sport and exercise nutrition register which is a branch of the british dietetics association so okay. you would submit your qualifications portfolio cv ex- experience and you do a case study and they will send it to their panel of nutrition experts and dietitians to be like this person is clearly in touch with the literature is a decent level of practitioner we're happy to stand over this person as a practitioner so they they're your accrediting body Mm-hmm. Very similar, I suppose, to the UK SCA, whereas if you can kind of show them you're able to coach and understand physiology, they're like, we'll stand over you as your accrediting body. Yeah. So there are stuff like that out there that exists. And then there's like the Association for Nutrition over in Ireland. We have the INDI, Irish Nutrition and Dietetics Institute. Um, and they're becoming a li- little bit more open to the idea of having nutritionists involved. Previously, you could only register with them if you were a dietitian, but they now have a sport and exercise nutrition group seng um and even like the sport institute of ireland have the uh, professional quality assurance program where again you you submit your qualifications your cv case study and they have practitioners that are like yeah we're going to stand over you as an accredited member of you know we think you're good enough to do that job which is fine but i'm not necessarily sure the public are fully aware of this no, and I don't think prob- so. Yeah, and the problem with nutritionist is it's not a protected term like registered dietitian. So there's no legal disincentive, I suppose. So I, I couldn't just label myself a dietitian because I could be sued because I'm not a dietitian, whereas I call myself a nutritionist. You can call yourself a nutritionist. Anyone that listens to this can call themselves mm-hmm. a nutritionist. Yeah. And that's where the, the trick comes in. So with even things like social media, anyone can bang you know, nutritionist in their, their tagline or you know the difference between having a nutrition cert and being a nutritionist or like a nutrition cert that you can i think there's like a fee tack in nutrition which would be a level five how does that stack up compared to someone who's got a master's or a phd in nutrition yeah and how does how does that get translated to the public um so i think the processes are in place they're getting better but it's kind of communicating that are making the public more aware of that yeah um because I've had it myself, I've had people like refer me on to people and I'll chat to them and they're like, yeah, yeah, good to go. Let's get, get cracking. Um, and I'll be like, oh, do you want me to send through a list of my qualifications? And they're kind of like, no. I'm like, mm. I will say that like, you know, from my perspective, I appreciate you saying I've got a master's in strength and conditioning. It strokes my ego and it's really nice to hear. But never once um in the process of having a new client come on board have i had them ask me what my qualifications are now you could say yeah i have it listed in my bio and instagram um so maybe you could say oh i've already seen that but i think if somebody really cared about that they would be inclined to ask like oh where did you do your masters and you know all that sort of stuff i I, I just don't think it's something that's in uh people's like thought process when it comes to seeking out coaching whether that's nutrition coaching or or strength coaching or whatever i think people tend to be more focused on the 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 character or the personality of the coach themselves and the results that they appear to be getting for people 
which I would say is why social media is such a such a potent platform for people um, and, and how they can make it quite easy to kind of masquerade as experts. Yeah, but do you think that then, like, are the general public aware that there are people that have master's levels, qualifications working in gyms to be personal trainers or people that have master's level qualifications working in gyms to have is a kind of this spectrum of understanding of the level of qualification. I'm not necessarily you walk in and you drop. Yeah. I'm kidding. Mm. I have a master's. Yeah. Definitely work with me. And I to- totally like results is probably the main thing is why people yeah. want to work with you. Yeah. Um, and I, obviously I, then how you are as a person. Yeah. I, I would agree that um, a lot of people wouldn't be aware of that. I've had lots of people um, ask me what I did in college. And when I tell them, they're like, Oh, I didn't know that was a thing, you know? Um, well, that's that's it because when yeah. traditionally when I I bumped into an old school friend years ago, his dad, and he was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, oh, "I'm just finishing my master's." And he's like, "Oh, I didn't know you wanted to be a teacher." Like, <laughs> but the the old the kind yeah, of traditional yeah. sense was it's still it's still a fairly relatively new discipline. All of this kind of Massive, sports yeah. science, physiology, sport mm. nutrition, whereby people don't necessarily expect I don't think expect you to have a, a master's in a you know, how do you phrase this right? Not to sound like a dick, like a relatable field where like it's it's, it's in it's in people's faces. Whereas I think yeah. previously it was thought of like a master's is only for people that stay in academia or other spheres of, of operation, I think. I could yeah. be way off. That's just my kind of my view on it. Well, and look, I don't think that people have to have um, a master's degree or, or anything like that in order to be good at their job. No, um, no. Like if anything, I think as long as, you know, maybe it's ideally a science related field because mm. what college really did for me was it, it taught me how to think, taught me how to think critically um, and how to appraise research and evidence and that kind of thing. And, and that is like a really transferable skill to, to any area of science. Um, so, you know, theoretically, if somebody didn't go to college, but they've somehow managed to educate themselves on the research and they're staying up to date with this, then I think they could be just as good a coach or better than somebody who went to college and had all of this information thrown at them, but didn't actually engage with it or absorb it. I mean, you see it, I see it on, on online all the time now, people who have PhDs, like PhD level of education and don't seem or claim to, to not really fully understand basic principles like progressive overload or specificity and, uh, and have huge followings, um, maybe potentially because they're able to kind of inject that, that science-y elements to what they're doing. Um, but I find that quite interesting, and it kind of makes me question whether stricter regulation is really the answer because... Um, in personal training or strength and conditioning, I'll hear people often point to like, oh, look at physiotherapy. Physiotherapy is really well regulated. Um, and it, it is to a certain degree, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to get somebody who is engaging with the research regularly. I've had physical therapists that I've gone to have a much lower barrier of entry and are actually evidence-based and have gotten me far better results than a physio who's, um, you know, idea of, of rehabbing a shoulder injury so I can bench again is just doing like 20 reps of a band exercise, you know? 
Hmm. Yeah, it's plausible. Like, from the nutrition perspective, I think a bit more regulation would be nicer. Hmm. I, but I still don't think for any profession, you're still going to get people that don't engage as much as other people. Yeah, it's, um, it's just a reality. Yeah, unfortunately. But yeah, it is what it is. Um, yeah, I didn't mean that to come across like everyone has to have a master's type of thing. It was more so no, like... No everyone's perception or, or understanding that there are people out there that have these qualifications which could potentially you know there is a difference between a FETAC level five and a master's degree on yeah. it's a spectrum but like you said someone could have done a FETAC five or six or ten years ago but has literally read every paper ever since yeah so it comes down to the individual which I suppose is the trick um but again if you had some kind of body that was like, okay, so you don't have a master's, but you have all this 10 years or 12 years experience plus this qualification. Okay. Submit us a case study as to what you did. And, and the idea behind the case studies, I suppose, is they can try and gauge your ability to reason based on evidence, which they'd be like, okay, you have a scientific approach, which is what they're looking at. Like you said, is can this person think critically or yeah. is it like, if you apply your case study, for example, and you're like, oh, my player got injured, so I put him on a keto diet for six months, they'd be like, okay, why'd you do that? And it's like, oh, it was because I'm a keto guy. They'd be like, no, we're not going to stand over your... Yeah. You know, yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think some some extra could help uh, with practitioners. In terms of supplements, yeah, absolutely. I think the drawback, like you said, is like a supplement is basically taken as safe or effective until proven otherwise. So... Mm -hmm supplements can be released to market and, and on shelves before any negative side effects or harmful side effects, or even like just, you know, this doesn't actually work before all of that's uncovered. Um, and then I think in the USA anyway, it's, it's then at the discretion of the food and drug administration, the FDA to actually, it's, it's, it's on them. It's their burden to go and investigate this and actually remove it from shelves. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a tricky thing. Um, so the supplements don't have to undergo as rigorous testing like pharmaceuticals. They don't have to typically go through clinical trials. Mm -hmm. um, and even if they do put supplements through trials previously, I, I'd say, and some of them aren't of the highest standard or, or greatest rigor. Um, my major concerns around supplements would be contamination. Um, yeah, lack for, of especially for athletes. Oh, 100%, so, yeah. Interestingly, um uh, a very well-known Australian strength and conditioning coach was an adjunct professor on my master's. And um, I think the situation in Australia now is that you have to be an accredited member of the ASCA to work with um, professional sports. Um, I think that it may also be the case that you have to have some, some kind of um, an accredited degree in uh, nutrition as well, if you're going to work as a nutritionist. Um, but I was asking them about, you know, how they managed to get it to that standard over there. And he was saying that uh, it actually took like a major fuck up for them to actually start regulating it, where there was some guy who was working with a uh, really high level, I think it was an Aussie rules team, could have that wrong, but I think it was Aussie rules. And um, he was in charge of their supplementation whatever he gave them had a banned substance in it and that team like every player tested positive for this banned substance so the whole team had to miss the entire season and so you know obviously that's when investors and that kind of stuff will get really pissed off and say what the hell is going on here how could this have happened 
and they dug into it and your man I think had no qualifications or almost no qualifications at all um and so they were like you know how is this possible at like you know an elite level of sports that somebody was able to get this access to these players and and uh, give them the supplements or whatever so he was saying and like that was when everything changed they changed like the, the legislation around it so he was saying it probably takes something like that like a major scandal to happen before it's going to be something that uh, governing bodies will really be be arsed with with handling yeah it's it's crazy and like some of the some of the if you go back through some of the like the supplement papers like up to like 50 percent in some cases have been contaminated with like heavy metals or there's one paper where they saw they bought like 50 different supplements off the shelves and like 30 percent of them had like pro hormones or steroid like compounds in them yeah and it's because they're not regulated and screened like pharmaceuticals um so you don't know where they're actually being made all this kind of stuff so contamination and the risk of an adverse analytical finding or failing a, a doping test for an athlete which means they could potentially be banned yeah. which means they lose their income their sponsorships like you said if it's a team in, investors start asking questions the team loses out and yeah. the other thing is their reputation is, yeah that's well, what i was going to say as well you have something in your system that shouldn't be there whether it was intentional or not you're always going to be tired of that that will follow you for your career like mm. So the lesser, I suppose, uh, no, I suppose they're still as, as important as like the quality of the supplement. There's no guarantee it does what it says. Um, and the last one then would be like potential side effects of the supplement if they haven't actually been measured and tracked yeah. for a long period of time. So like in terms of where do you go to report a supplement side effect? It's not like you ring up the supplement company because they'll probably be like, oh, thanks for that. Yeah. That, that can be potentially an issue. And then there are, there are cases where, like, was it uh, the pre-workout stuff from a few years ago um, contained basically MDMA or a very MDMA-like compound in it? Um, Jack 3D, am I allowed to say that on your podcast? <laughs> <laughs> if I get sued, I'll blame you. It, wasn't, it didn't have MDMA. It had, like, DNA, which was a very similar chemical. Yeah. Um, structure related to the methamphetamine family i don't think they're even still in business anymore are they do they not have a load of people have heart attacks or something that's why because they had all these stimulants in that they hadn't yeah. listed on the label so people were double scooping or probably dry scooping or whatever they do <laughs> Jeez. But i think there was a lady in the 2012 marathon in london had taken some of these stuff i think she took track 3d and she had a heart attack in the middle of her 20 kilometer race or whatever it was a combination of that and dehydration and yeah. You just like if, if things aren't regulated and they have things in them that they shouldn't have that could have side effects, you need to tell people about them. Yeah. And I think you were saying uh, the last chat we had to make sure that you look for the batch tested. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you're buying yeah, so Yeah. So if you're looking for supplements and your athlete that's in a testing pool or just in general population, just to save yourself any unwanted concerns, is informed sport is the kind of third party independent lab yeah or the website anyway that kind of controls i think it's lga labs where they'll test supplements batches of supplements from from different manufacturers mm -hmm. and they will say whether or not the supplement is clear from contamination and isn't safe to take so they don't actually say whether the supplement is does what it says on the tin they just yeah. say it's safe to consume because it doesn't contain anything not listed on its ingredients label right um 
So that would be where I direct people. And when I was in Munster, we always had to make sure that if we were ordering supplements in, it always had to come through either our contracted supplier. And we always made sure that we worked with a supplier that had batch tested supplements. Um, because if we didn't, it means we wouldn't be able to order supplements in because they wouldn't have anything our athletes could take anyway. Yeah. And then we had to be careful of like, even, even little things like athletes would come in, like I take a Baraka, is that okay? And you're still a bit like... Not really, because it may have something in it that's not on the label. So we'll get you multivitamins instead type of thing. And you just have to make sure even those are batch tested. It's just minimize all the yeah. risk wherever possible. Yeah. So brings me back to if you can get it from food, get it from food. And then if you really think you need a supplement, have some sort of assessment that tells you, okay, you probably should need a supplement. So yeah. sort of biochemical or blood marker or something like that. And then supplement and see what's the minimum amount you need to give before. You know, you don't need to. Oh, you're you're not given like five thousand IU's of vitamin D because there's no sun. It's kind of like can we measure it and see what you actually need? Two thousand things yeah. like that. Um, well, I think that's a, that's a good point to end on. Okay. Um, it's been going for a while here. I did. I wanted to cover BCAAs with you as well, but we can save that till next time. Now go on, fire it in. Um, well, okay, just just quickly before we finish up, then BCAAs. Um, is it something that is going to be uh, given a performance enhancing effect if you are taking in enough protein already to begin with? Nope. Waste okay. of money. Yeah. If you're buying whey, you're already getting your BCAs. If you're eating enough protein from animal sources, you're already getting enough BCAs. Yeah. Save your money. Keep your urine. That's cool. expensive. All right. We'll keep that short and sweet. Um, <laughs> Uh, because we've already done loads of talking about protein today. If um, if anybody wants to follow you, Instagram is that the main social media you use? Yeah, uh, ask Rich underscore underscore Rich underscore Kelly three three. And you throw up some um, recipes and stuff like that on there. I see. Yeah, I started doing reels, which I think get a lot. I get a lot more engagement with those than I did with the stories and stuff. So, well, that's um, just because we've all got tiny attention spans now. <laughs> it's the algorithm, bro. Got to yeah. feed the algorithm. So yeah, Rich Kelly is probably the main place. I'm on Twitter, but I just kind of use that to reshare or retweet uh, papers. And usually it's, I'll be scrolling Twitter and I'll see a paper that I want to read. So I retweet it. And then when I've got time on the weekend, I'll go back and be like, what was that? And then I'll go and read the paper. <laughs> and um, are you offering any kind of um, coaching services if people want to get in contact or anything like that? Or are you just working with teams at the moment? No, I'm doing private clients at the moment. I'm kind of full, but I think there could be some availability coming up in the next couple of weeks. I might be finishing up with a client. Um, but yeah, I do that if people slide in my DMs on Instagram. That's probably the best place to get me. I don't, I don't. I haven't gone down the route of setting up a website yet or anything like that. Um, it might be something I'll look into in the future. But yeah. for the now, I'm just, it's not, it hasn't been my priority, let's say. Cool. I can tell you from experience, Instagram does not like you trying to take people off their platform to a website. So it, does, it doesn't always work out. Um, cool. Well, listen, thanks a million for all of the information there. Um, I'm sure we'll do it again if, if you're up for that. Uh, sometime maybe a bit later on when we can accumulate some topics to talk through again. If you're generous listeners are so uh, open to having me back on like they were this time, that'd be great. Yeah. So, as thanks I said, to everyone that checked out the last one and, and found it beneficial. If I can help in any way, like Hill said, hit me up. Brilliant. All right. Well, have a good Halloween.
and um i'm sure i'll uh, talk to you on instagram about a meme or something like that soon enough i hope so take it easy uh, cheers man bye see bye. you